a little different room arrangement today, and so if you're at the back and have trouble hearing, DJ, just let me know, and I'll try to speak up. First note, we're calling this Lesson 3. I know that maybe on your list it had it as Lesson 4. The very first week we met, we're calling that an introduction. And so this is now Lesson 3, Arriving at Sound Doctrine. We've been speaking now for a few weeks about just how important it is to know the God who has spoken. And that we know the God who has spoken because of what he has revealed about himself. And so we talked about revelation, just the doctrine of revelation, that God has revealed himself through all that he has made, but then he has revealed himself most particularly and clearly through his word, the scriptures. And it's by going to the word that we'll talk about this morning that we really can come to know God most particularly and specifically and personally. We can know him generally through all that he has made and done, but then we know him personally and are given all that is needed for life and godliness through his word. And so we've established that scripture matters to life even more than we can measure or fathom. It is the very word of God. It is necessary for salvation. We talked about how there's there's enough in creation for us to sort of be held accountable for seeing, knowing, and believing and thanking God. But there's not enough in creation sort of to lead us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That for that knowledge, God had to speak. He had to put it into words. That Jesus had to come, and people like John the Baptist had to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that we needed that kind of specific verbal inspiration. And so it is necessary for salvation. It's necessary for everything pertaining to life and godliness, Peter tells us. It is special revelation of God from God. And so sound doctrine, this is our main point for this morning, comes from Holy Scripture, from the Bible. That's where we go for sound doctrine. If our teaching of what we'll call just so-called theological truths does not come from the Scripture, does not arise from the Scripture, then we shouldn't call it sound doctrine. Again, there, there may be truth in some of it, but it won't take long. Two or three steps down the road, we're going to fall off the path. And so if we're not going to Scripture for our doctrine, for our thinking about God and life and this world that He's made then it won't be sound. And so we read last time the Delray Baptist Church Statement of Faith, and we'll do it again this morning. Do you have it in front of you? You may not. I'll just read it. We believe that the Holy Bible, both Old and New Testaments, was authored by God and through divine inspiration written down by men. We affirm that the Bible is totally sufficient and trustworthy, completely free from error, and reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It includes within it the only way of salvation and has as its ultimate fulfillment Jesus the Christ. The Bible will remain to the end of the world the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. 
So last week we talked about, or two weeks ago, that connection between inspiration and authority. And this week we're going to sort of close in on that final phrase, supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. So we're going to talk about why that statement is in our statement of faith. Why we put that out there as, okay, this is what, as a congregation of, as a gathering of Christians, this is what we believe about Scripture. It's the, what we call the supreme standard, the rule, the final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. And so if we call anything in, ch- in the church a doctrine, then what should we be able to say right after that? Yeah. And here's the passages of Scripture that this doctrine is drawn from. Here's where in God's revelation we see this doctrine sort of revealed and presented. This is Matthew 15 where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He quotes from Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's a really striking statement and really troubling. And I can think of few things I'd least want to hear from Jesus at the end of my life than that statement. (laughs) Or any pastor or elder or anybody in the body of Christ that you taught as doctrines your own ideas, the mere commandments of men. And so what we see here from Jesus' words is, number one, he really does believe there's such a thing as doctrine, right? And so Jesus really believes in sound doctrine. But then number two, there's a place we're meant to go get it. And it isn't the ideas of people. It isn't just sort of sitting around and thinking about it. And so that's why we're going to go to the scripture. And so arriving at sound doctrine begins with seeking doctrine in the Bible. And so as we get into that, I just want to sort of give a brief aside about seeking doctrines in the Bible. This is your first point. I'm going to say this because there's there's much the Scripture gives us just that is really, again, essential and necessary for life and godliness. But there's also a lot the Scripture doesn't give us just about life as a whole. The scripture isn't going to tell you how to sort of electrically wire an air conditioning unit. And you can kill yourself trying, right? Scripture isn't going to teach you how to plant and grow crops. Scripture isn't going to teach you how to operate heavy machinery. Those are all things that if you don't do them well, you'll die. And so we're not going to say that your soul is dependent upon knowing those things. But they really are important to life. And the scripture doesn't really tell us what to do with it. The scripture doesn't tell us, okay, here's how you have to do your hair. Here's how you have to sort of match your clothing. Here's how you ought to sort of walk and talk. We can't go to the scripture to find sort of a doctrine of fashion. And I say that because there's many sort sort of movements of Christian history that have tried to extrapolate from Scripture doctrines that really aren't there, things that God isn't trying to really regulate and manage and speak. And so he's not going to say, okay, here's the proper time to eat lunch or dinner. Here's what has to be in your diet. 
That just isn't the way or the reason for which God has given us his word. Instead, scripture proclaims Jesus Christ, Hebrews says, who is the founder and perfecter of faith. Romans 1.16, that scripture declares the power of God for salvation, which is the gospel. Scripture sheds light onto the whole of human life, but in this very sort of comprehensive orientation of the heart, reconciling us to God way. And does that affect the way we do everything? Absolutely. So God isn't as interested in, okay, here's when you have to eat lunch, but he is very interested in us knowing here's where your lunch comes from, and here's how you're to eat your lunch with thanksgiving and with gratitude and in worship. Isn't as interested in, okay, here's the job you have to have. Or here's the way that you have to spend your time today. But isn't interested in, okay, in everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do what? Do all things for the glory of God. And so the scripture is, you know, sort of strategic and specific in what God's (coughs) trying to do. And so we have to sort of be careful that as we go to the word in search of doctrine, that we're actually drawing out doctrine that God intends us to draw out and sort of not using the Bible to sort of regulate and manage our life or everybody else's sort of on terms and in ways that God didn't intend. And there's a lot, and that's part of why I read that, okay, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You know, think about the times that Jesus gets into the conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees that begins with, why do your disciples do this? Why do they violate the traditions of the elders? And what's Jesus going to say to that? Okay, why do you set aside the word of God for your traditions? Okay, why are you going to sort of take scripture and put it here, but you're going to elevate sort of your ideas? Well, because they had all these traditions. Again, it doesn't mean traditions are just all bad. It doesn't mean, okay, we have, we, we start the main church service at 1045. Does the Bible tell us to do that? No. But is it important to sort of have a starting time if we want to actually gather together and sort of have a certain order of service? Certainly. But is that rule to be applied to every church that gathers? To every group? And okay, in a century, does it have to be 1045? Or in a decade? Or, or can that change? And so while there are certainly going to be traditions and certain things that a, a gathering decides together, this will help us love God and love one another well, what we have to be careful is to not teach that as doctrine. That this is sort of the commandment of God when in fact it's more our tradition. And it could be helpful. We want to be careful not to impose that on every other person. And so the comprehensive, life-giving, heart focus of Scripture we have to keep in mind. But then also, secondly, the grand redeeming narrative structure of Scripture we have to keep in mind. That, that while we can go to the Scripture, gather passages, and arrive at sort of sound doctrine... We have to realize that that doctrine doesn't just sort of exist on its own, but it's connected to sort of all the other doctrines of the scripture. And all those sort of fit within this grand narrative of God's redeeming work in history. And so each doctrine must be sort of properly understood, just as each passage is understood in the context of the whole Bible, in the context of the chapter where we find it, and the book where we find it. And in sort of that, you know, sort of part of redemptive history that God is speaking into. And so sound doctrine in the Bible is an attempt to answer the question, what does God think we really need to know? 
That's what we're trying to answer. What does God think we really need to know and that we really need to believe? What does he deem so essential to eternal life, so sort of wrapped up in his glory, so essential to the eternal good of human souls that he set it down in his written word? And so these are questions we're trying to answer when trying to arrive at sound doctrine. And then, of course, it's going to begin with our second point here with careful study. Careful study. That we don't arrive at sound doctrine through feelings, through sort of impressions, through staring at the ocean and meditating. As awesome as staring at the ocean can be, and even staring at mountains and meditating. But really, if we're going to stare at the oceans, what's the best thing to meditate upon? Yeah, God's Word and what, how God's Word as a lens through which we see and meditate upon the ocean, not the other way around, where I meditate upon the ocean and then extrapolate from it God's Word. And so careful study. This is Ezra 7.10. Luis, you want to read that for us, that Ezra 7.10? I think you have it in your sheet in front of you. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I love that. For the good hand of his God was on him. And why was it on him? How does it explain it here? Yeah, for he had. So that for is explaining what he just said. For the good hand of the Lord was upon him because he had set his heart to, number one, study the law of the Lord, number two, to do it, number three, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so teaching the word of God, teaching statutes and ordinances in Israel wasn't first in Ezra's life. What was first in his life? God's with him. Good, God's good hand is on him. And then setting his heart to study the word of God. And then, setting, then second, setting his heart to practice it. Then he's going to teach it. So you see here this order of priorities for Ezra that that for him, that sound doctrine is going to begin with careful study. And part of that's going to begin with reading and listening. So the first step in arriving at sound doctrine from the Bible is reading the Bible. Or if you're not able to read, hearing it, listening to it, being read or spoken. And I, and I don't think we should take this for granted because... It, Across many centuries of Christian history, Christians have not had the Bible in their own language. There have been many sort of cultures where it was actually against the law to possess a written copy of the Bible, especially in your own language. What happened to Tyndale for translating the Bible into English? Yeah, they're going to burn him at the stake for that. And several of his disciples, one of whom just had, was... He was found with one paragraph. I think it's the, it was the Lord's Prayer on a piece of paper, and they killed him just for having that written down in English on his possession. 
And so we think about it and go, and, and that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> We're talking about a few centuries back that that's what's happening, 500 years. And so this idea, though, okay, that we have the Word of God, we have it in our language. We have it really carefully written in our language. We have it packaged in these bound books with footnotes and cross-references. I mean, so we think, what a gift we've been given just to be able to read the Word of God, to hear the Word of God. And that's where sound doctrine is going to begin, is in reading and listening (coughs) to the Word. But then also in understanding that a primary goal of reading Scripture is understanding Scripture. That we actually want to arrive at the right meaning of what God's saying. That's, that's the question. One of the questions we've got to have in our mind as we're reading any passage is what does God mean by what He says? Because it's key to understanding, honoring this, any person that we're in relationship with. So imagine either with your roommates or with your spouse or with your siblings or friends, when they spoke to you, you just decided they meant whatever you wanted them to mean. How well would that relationship go? You know, how long would it take before there's conflict? Yeah, and there's countless stories in the scripture of God speaking, people taking it to mean really what they wanted and arriving at a golden calf or something else. Because whatever their version was, wasn't really what God meant by what he said. So that's why it's so critical as we read and listen that we're really exerting energy coming to a right understanding. And that's why there's, there's books written, Bible study methods books, that are intended to help us arrive at the right meaning of what God has said. But even as I say that, I also want to emphasize that the Bible is meant to be understood by normal people. Like you, God hasn't written it in just bizarre, confusing, cryptic words. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, God knew his audience. God knew who he was speaking to and writing to. So the reason we understand what God says in his word can be attributed to, number one, just the plain language of the scripture. I think we can say that it is given in plain language. I remember talking to a philosophy student at a university who was fluent in classic Greek. And one of the things that offended him the most about the Bible, the New Testament, was that it was written in Koine Greek. And he said, it's just this, it's this vulgar language of the people. It's what just fishermen and people on the street spoke. Whereas classic Greek, that's what the philosophers and the educated, that, that's what they were. And so he could not understand how anyone could be impressed with a Bible that was delivered in Koine Greek. And so we, I tried to just kind of share with them that, that that's actually what makes it so delightful. Is yet, Do you think God could have written it in classic Greek? He could have written it in whatever he wanted, but yet he's going to say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the language of the street, the language that just people who can't even read can comprehend. People who have a fifth-grade education can understand this. <clears throat> I remember 
you know, even in, in some of the work of translation, you know, read different articles on how hard it is, number one, to capture in English such glorious and wonderful ideas. But then I've also heard it said that it's, and also keeping it as plain as it really is in, in the Greek language, like how Paul's actually saying it, how these authors are putting it down. It really is something that just a plain reading with the generous help of the Holy Spirit is sort of meant to bring comprehension without a PhD, without a master's, without even a high school diploma. And so firstly, the plain language of his word, but then secondly, just the generous help of his Holy Spirit. That's why, therefore, just a, an eighth grader, a fifth grader, um, just someone in a tribe in Africa or in the mountains of Peru can hear the word of God proclaimed and comprehend it. And of course, there's going to be parts of Scripture that are difficult to understand. Peter says this, 2 Peter 3, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. But then listen to what he says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. So again, notice how Peter phrased it. Some things are hard to understand. Not all things, not many things, not most things, but some things which means that Peter believed that most things in the Bible were actually easy to understand if what was happening in the reader. Yeah, if they had the Holy Spirit, if their heart was open to receive it. Not hard to understand. That's why if you've ever heard the phrase perpiscuity of Scripture, the perpiscuity of Scripture... What that word really means is sort of the plain speaking of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. That, to use Peter's word, not hard to understand. So whenever theologians use words like, okay, that the perpiscuity of Scripture, that's really what they're talking about. That God has delivered it in a way. Yeah, they're using a very hard to understand word <laughs> to explain that it's not hard to understand what God has said and written. So sound doctrine, therefore or biblical teaching on theological truths, should also have perpiscuity. It should also have a certain clarity to it. According to Lloyd-Jones, he says, true scriptural doctrine is always plain and clear. <coughs> yes, that's what we aim to do. That's what we try to do. That's why it's always helpful for every member of the body of Christ as they're learning, as they're growing in the Lord, as they're learning great books, is just to teach third grade Sunday school to teach second graders, where you have to learn how to take the Word of God and, and make it sensible to eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds. Because does that take a certain kind of prayer and thinking for us to sort of boil it down? And how am I going to say this to my kids? How am I going to say this in a way that they can comprehend? How am I going to use illustrations that are really helpful illustrations? And to do that, we have to have a sort of a grasp, a basic grasp of what God is saying and what he means. And so the chief obstacle to understanding scripture, this is important, is a hardened heart. That's, that's the chief obstacle, not education. Though we, we need to be able to understand language, I think God can convert and transform a four-year-old. He, I think he's able to reach their understanding in a way. But not a 40-year-old with a hard heart. 
not someone who sort of refuses and rejects God and his word. This is how Paul described unbelievers in Ephesians 4. They are darkened in their understanding. The lights are out. Alienated from the life of God. And here's why. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So why was there ignorance? Hardness of heart. That's right. That, that, that's how God, through Paul, is explaining. This is sort of what is at the root of the struggle and trouble. Which is why as we come to the Word of God to, to learn, to understand, to read, what should we be asking God to do? <coughs> Soften our hearts. Turn the lights on. <laughs> you know, give me <coughs> humility to receive. Which brings us to the next point, and that's humble thinking. So careful study, reading, listening, understanding, but then also humble thinking. That we can't arrive at sound doctrine <coughs> without careful and humble thinking. And so as we read, as we understand texts of Scripture, we begin to notice sort of points of connection in them. And the more years go by that you're reading and studying and understanding the Scripture, the more you'll see many points of connection. Hey, what Paul's talking about here, I think that's what Peter was talking about here. What Peter's talking about here, I think Jesus said something like that here. And what Jesus said here, I think Moses said something here. And then even Isaiah, there's this passage that you start to see, okay, there's these points of connection where authors in whatever different words God's inspiring them to use are talking about the same basic things. And so we begin to notice those common themes, those common topics and ideas and keywords. And so we just begin to go, okay, so atonement, just as a theme in the Bible. So we may, so we may hear it explicitly talked about in an epistle of Paul. But then we also may see it sort of hinted at in something that Jesus is saying about offering up his body and his blood as a sacrifice, as an atonement. And we go, but wait a minute, there was also atonement in the Old Testament before Jesus. And so what's happening there? And then we go, okay, we go to the garden in Genesis 3. Okay, there's sin and there should have been death. Then God's going to cover them in the skin of an animal. So something died, but not them. So even though atonement isn't explicitly sort of picture, you know, talked about in Genesis 3, we go, but was there sort of a seed planted, even right there, for the need and existence of atonement long before it's sort of ever mentioned with that word? And so those would be examples of just you begin to see connection points and see how those are related and then gathering those passages of Scripture together. That while every single text is the inspired word of God, and right doctrine can be concluded from a single passage, I think sound doctrine is really established and learned by the agreement of many passages. You know, that we should be able to see, okay, many places in Scripture that confirm, that make that doctrine sort of sound. Because none of us built a sound house with one piece of plywood, right? Hopefully. That what makes, it, what makes a wall sound is, is the many <coughs> elements in agreement in the wall. Because also, if all the two-by-fours are facing in different directions and at different angles, you may get a wall up, but it won't be a sound wall. And so you need 
multiple two by fours, all parallel, all facing the same direction, all plumb, all of the same length, and now the sort of the sound doctrine takes shape. And so it's similar here that around many passages um, that we're going to now, with agreement, begin to draw from them what is the doctrine behind these passages. Which requires then, point B there, reasoning. That gathering passages of Scripture is not enough to arrive at sound doctrine. No more than grocery shopping is enough to arrive at a sound meal, right? None of us grocery shop, bring it home, put it on the table, and now the meal's ready. What do we have to do? Actually, you have to prepare it. You have to, you have to take all these ingredients. You have, to, you have to chop them up in certain ways. You have to combine them in certain ways. You have to cook them in certain ways. There's a lot that goes between the grocery shopping and then the table. And so I think with sound doctrine, it's similar, that we can gather all these passages. We can sort of grocery shop for the passages. But now we sort of have to break them apart and put them together and sort of cook them <laughs> to arrive at, okay, here's the meal. And so we need reasoning. This is Lloyd-Jones in his book, Great Doctrines of the Bible. He says, rather, I suggest we do this. We do collect our texts. We discover every statement that we can find in the Bible on a particular subject. Then having gathered them together and having collated them, we proceed to discover the doctrine which lies at the foundation. That is what we are concerned about. Here are these various statements. What is the doctrine they are propounding? What are they telling us? What is the basic something that is common to all these statements? That is our doctrine. And so even with that in mind, when I read that, I thought, okay, so we kind of need to redefine, I think, our definition a little or add to our definition of what sound doctrine is. Remember early on we said sound doctrine is biblical teaching on theological truths, which I still think is a good way to say it. I think according to Lloyd-Jones, I think there's another way to say it, and that is sound doctrine is the theological truth the Bible teaches. And so it's, it's the theological truth that's, that's sort of in the passages and what they're teaching. So at first we said biblical teaching on theological truths, but I think according to Lloyd-Jones we could say the theological truth that the Bible teaches, the, the doctrine behind the passage that God is trying to deliver to us. So sound doctrines are the precious realities that God is revealing and declaring through his word, which is why we don't create sound doctrine. We don't establish sound doctrine. We don't decide what, here's the sound doctrine, now let's go find out where it is. Yeah, we, we, we find it in God's word. We discover it. We, we dig in and then arrive at sound doctrine through what God has spoken and declared. So we discern it, we draw it out, we explain it. And so according to Lloyd-Jones, as well as we could say just classical sort of views of logic, we're going to discern and draw out that, that doctrine through two main lines of reasoning. One is deductive and the other is inductive. So deductive and inductive. Again, as we go along, though, it, it, um, some of you, I know I did when I read those words, I just had these flashbacks to freshman philosophy classes, <laughs> and I started twitching, because I was like, oh. I tell you what, when you really think about it, sound reasoning is essential to sound doctrine. And again, I don't want you to hear you have to be really educated, because eight-year-olds can have sound reasoning, 
and 80-year-olds can have flawed reasoning. Which again, the main obstacle to comprehending God's word is what? A hardened heart. And what the world even does not understand is how much the condition of the soul actually affects reasoning and your capacity to reason. Which is why Peter is going to say, okay, that these false teachers are like unreasoning animals. Even Jews are going to describe false teachers in a similar way. And they may have been philosophically sort of brilliant or well-known. They may have been very intellectual. But what God sees is, okay, but they're not actually reasoning. Because according to Romans 1, if we're actually reason- when we look at creation and use sound reasoning, what should we conclude? There is a God. <laughs> and is he small or big? Yeah. And does he deserve to be scorned or thanked? Yeah, and so Paul goes, hey, just simple reasoning, just clear reasoning. You look at the creation and you go, okay, there's a God. He's mighty. He's great. He deserves worship. And so as we talk about this deductive and inductive, again, I don't want you to hear this thing that you sort of have to learn like a graduate student, but more this thing that you have to submit to doing that is just a common kindness of God to all people. And when the heart is humble, we are much more able to reason reasonably. And when the heart is hard, we can be given over to all kinds of madness. You know, Balaam is a great example who was a well-known prophet in the book of Numbers that, and was a false prophet that, is it the king of Moab? It's not Midian. <coughs> is it the king of Moab that hired him? Is it Moab? So king of Moab hires him to go and curse Israel. And of course, God's going to tell Balaam what? Don't do it. And so what would be the reasonable thing? Don't do it. But then what did the king of Moab offer? More money. Lots of money. And what does money do to reasoning? Yeah, all of a sudden, all of a sudden it it sounded reasonable to go do this. And so he's going to go on his way, and who's going to meet him? He's not going to see him until his eyes are open. But who's going to meet him as he goes? The angel of the Lord. So this sort of, pre-incarnate Christ and the donkey's going to see and we're meant to see the contrast that the donkey sees what's happening and then God through the prophet according to Peter is going to say through, through this donkey is going to restrain the madness of the prophet That's, those are the words that Peter used that he's going to speak through a dumb donkey to restrain the madness of this prophet that he's just going headlong in. Yet how many people would have looked at Balaam and gone, man, he is insane. His reasoning is gone. Or everyone is going to look and go, that's a pretty good business decision. He's about to get rich by going and just giving a one-hour talk on a mountain and then going home. Yet Scripture says it's madness. So his reasoning was actually compromised. But we don't just use inductive and deductive reasoning because of logic or because of Lloyd-Jones, but because I think even the Scripture models that for us. I think when we look at how Paul handles the Word of God, when we look at how Jesus handles the Word of God, they actually handle it using sound reason. This is Matthew twenty-two, thirty-one 31 through 33. Do you have that in front of you? Anybody have that? 
Johnny, would you read that for us? Matthew 22, 31 through 33. Yeah, and so this is just inductive reasoning is what he's using. And so Jesus is going to say, as for the resurrection of the dead, because he's talking to Sadducees who don't believe there was a resurrection. So he's say, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? And so what's the assumption in Jesus' statement there? If you had read this with sort of a humble heart and just reasoned it out, you should be able to conclude from this passage that there is a resurrection. And so when you re- but when most of us read that passage before, like if we just go to the Old Testament and read, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how many of us go, oh, resurrection? So the word isn't there. Not even implicitly is that passage about resurrection firsthand. But yet for Jesus, what can be adduced from that passage? If you just think through, okay, I am the God of Abraham, not past tense, present tense. I am the God of Isaac, not past, present. So now he's going to use this to use inductive reasoning to arrive at this conclusion. There is a resurrection from just that statement. So I think we see there just in Jesus, the way Jesus is handling scripture is with sound reasoning. In Romans 6, 1 through 4, Micah, you want to read that for us? Romans 6, 1 through 4. Yeah, and so there we see Paul using deductive reasoning. And I'll explain what those are here in a little bit. Where Jesus is going to sort of take these, these basic sort of premises about what God is saying. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to sort of lead to this conclusion that an inductive reasoning, which could be wrong based on the premises, because there's nothing explicitly there. But Paul instead is going to use deductive reasoning where he's going to lay forth these premises that if they're true, the conclusion has to be true. Like there's no other way to explain it. And so deductive reasoning is a logical process whereby we try to follow general premises from Scripture to determine sort of a specific, clear conclusion. Not a general principle, not sort of a broad general idea but a very specific conclusion. So we see here with Paul, so premise one, anyone who has died to sin can no longer live in it. That's something he just, he just explicitly says. The question is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his first premise is, anyone who has died to sin can no longer live in it. Premise two, anyone who is baptized into Christ has what? has died with him. The implication, yeah, died with him to sin. Premise three, all Christians have been baptized into Christ. So there's three sort of premises he's going to lay out. Anyone who's died to sin can no longer live in it. 
Anyone who has been baptized into Christ has died with him. And all Christians have been baptized into Christ. Therefore, conclusion one is that he's making all Christians have died with Christ. Conclusion two is all Christians can no longer live in unbroken patterns of sin. So you see how he answers his question through that process of deductive reasoning. So what shall we say? Shall we continue to live in sin so that grace may abound? His answer is by no means, but he's not just going to leave it there. He could have just stopped. Said no. The answer is no. Said he's going to show us how he gets there. How can someone who's died to sin still live in it? Which means, okay, anyone who's died to sin can no longer live in it. And do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So there's that second premise. Anyone who has been baptized into Christ has died with him. And then we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So there's that third premise. All Christians have been baptized into Christ. Therefore, all Christians have died with Christ, which means we can't live in sin, unbroken patterns of sin any longer. So I think, again, we see there with Paul, he's just reasoning out his answer from Scripture. So in the study of Scripture, deductive reasoning is a logical process whereby we try to follow general premises from Scripture to determine a specific sound conclusion. And so a lot of people call this top-down logic. We sort of start with these general premises that sort of, and if, and if they're all true, it boils down to one specific conclusion that has to be true if the premises are true. You know, the doctrine of baptism would be another. We're not going to jump into it, but I think I listed a number of passages there for you. Uh, Romans 6, 1 through 4 is one. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is another. Acts 22, 12 through 16. Colossians 2, 11 12, and 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. And so just, that may be a great exercise in the days ahead, is just to take those passages, read them through, study them, and then just sort of write out a paragraph on the doctrine of baptism. And then think about it, because there's going to be a couple places that if you just take it for what it is, like things like rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, what might you conclude from that phrase? That baptism actually washes away your sins. That the physical submersion, that's important since we're going to have three baptisms this morning. That it's the physical submersion that actually saves you. And there are denominations that believe that. There are people who believe that's, that's where regeneration happens. But when you take sort of all these passages as a whole, and sort of you read them through and you go, well, well Peter can't mean that when he says that in Acts. Because he's going to write a letter in a little bit that says, that that clarifies that that isn't at all what he means by that. So again, it shows where you you sort of have to put it all together and prepare a meal from it. Because if we just base it on just one statement that gets said, and then we're going to interpret everything else in the Bible through that one statement. As opposed to, okay, when we lay it all out on the table, how does all this harmonize in the mind of God? What, What is he trying to help us to see. But what it also shows is sort of a right understanding of baptism also requires a right understanding of regeneration. So yes, okay, rise and be baptized and wash away all your sins calling on his name. We don't sort of say, okay, physical baptism doesn't save you, but we don't base that just on texts on baptism. 
We also base that on all the many passages on regeneration, on how conversion happens. So that's part of what I meant earlier when I said all the doctrines are connected together. We have to see how they fit. Because we can come to a wrong idea about baptism if we don't also have a right idea about regeneration, about how God actually gives new birth, about how that happens. But then induction or inductive reasoning is a logical process whereby we follow specific premises to a general, hopefully sound conclusion. So many people call this bottom-up. Rather than start general, get specific, we start very specific and arrive at something very general. That's what we saw Jesus do with, okay, have you not read what it says in the Scripture? Number two, that I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So he's not the God of the dead, but the living. And so we we take these very specific sort of statements that Jesus makes, and he's going to come to a very general conclusion, there is a resurrection. He's not going to go into this really detailed doctrine of resurrection. He's just making the case there is one. But here, it's going to go the other direction. Or in inductive reasoning, rather, it's going to go in that direction. And so one example is the doctrine of the Trinity, that nowhere in the Scripture do we actually find that word used or the doctrine of the Trinity spelled out. Nowhere does God say, I exist in Trinity, (laughs) right? Or I am three distinct persons in one God. He He doesn't say that. And so we don't arrive at sort of the doctrine of the Trinity using deductive reasoning, but rather through inductive. So I think there's a number of passages there uh, we list. Eric, would you get Genesis 1, 26? David Dahl, if you would get Deuteronomy 6, 4. Katie, if you would get Isaiah, um, Katie Dahl, 44, 6. DJ, if you would get Luke 3, 21 through 22. And Connie here, if you would get John 10, 25 through 33. So just listen to these passages being read. <coughs> And begin to think through, okay, what are the premises that are being set forth in these? What are, just think through, okay, when you hear a premise set out, kind of hold that in your mind, because then we're going to sort of put those together to arrive at a general conclusion. All right, go ahead with Genesis 1, 26. Yeah, just A. Yeah, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Besides me there is no God. All right, Luke 3. So that Luke 3, there we see those three. Okay, go ahead with John 10. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. And keep going, yeah. Jews picked up the stone and began to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father for which of them you are going to stone me. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. Yeah, you being a man, make yourself sort of out to be God. Sometimes you can say, okay, I and the Father are one. So what are some premises that you can draw from those, just those five passages? God is one. What else? There's no other God. There's one and only one God. And that God is one. What else? Okay, so you get, okay, the Father is God. Who else is God? The Son is God. What else? And the Holy Spirit is God. Let, let us. So there's this, okay, this God, this one and only God of whom there's no other is us. And then we see, okay, there's Father who's God, but yet distinct from the Son. There's Son who's God, yet distinct from the Father. There's Spirit who's God, yet distinct from the Father and the Son. So now you see, there, there are the sort of the specific statements that we go, okay, those are true, and we take those premises and we lead to what conclusion? The Trinity. We call it the Trinity, which is just a statement to summarize there is one God with three distinct persons. And so that would be an example of inductive reasoning because the conclusion could be wrong, but yet why do we not think it's wrong? Because how else do you explain all those statements? And so that's why, okay, if that isn't the right conclusion, and we go, then give me another conclusion of how we're to think about it. If each of these, if the Bible's true, which means these premises are all true, that, so that's how we arrive at doctrines like the Trinity, where the word Trinity isn't there, where God doesn't announce himself as I am Trinity, but rather through this process of inductive reasoning, that if these premises are all true, then how are we going to summarize it? How are we going to understand it? And so Trinity, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is... <clears throat> a way that we've done that. And again, it's accessible to the unlearned. You know, we don't mean that doctrine can only be for philosophers and highly educated people. So again, back to that recurring thought. So just, again, as you think through inductive reasoning, deductive reasoning, I'm not so much saying go out and get a book on it all, because again, the main task is going to be just prayerful, humble engagement with God and His Word with His people. But, I mean, I've heard R.C. Sproul argue before that he thinks seminaries ought to offer at least two classes of logic to all students. <laughs> that some of the things that he feels, he hears taught or said or done, even by Christians and Christian leaders, is not just sort of this, firstly, a miscarriage of doctrine, but a miscarriage of logic. Like, you just, how do you come to that conclusion from that passage or these passages? And so, there's something to be said there for first praying for it, receiving it, but then also thinking about Okay, there is a sound way to think about God's Word and what He said. It also requires, finally, just what I call cooperative faithfulness in the Word. <clears throat> that if I go to a mountain and sit there by myself with my Bible for years and years and years, I will arrive at all kinds of bad doctrine. <laughs> That's just, 
again, I think God is gracious, kind, he can give me his spirit, but then I think there's also a process he's given, a community he's given for that to be sort of understood within. And we see that story throughout scripture. Do, even the prophets and the apostles, did they ever have to be corrected by one another? Yeah, do people ever have to stay, step in and say, okay, you're off here. And so we get that picture in the Bible that, that we all need sort of this idea of cooperative faithfulness because number one, we could be wrong. Um, that, that possibility is there. Scott Cope, could you read that Galatians 2, 11 through 14? And Brian Fujita, would you get Acts 18, 24 through 26 while he's turning there? Yeah, so we see there that Peter or Paul is going to confront Peter because he's not in step with the truth of the gospel, and then he's going to resort to reasoning. <laughs> you know, to sort of he's going to say, you know, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, meaning you come here, you're fellowshipping with Gentiles, your freedom that you're exercising in Christ, not like a Jew. How can you force Gentiles now to live like Jews? If you really think that Christ has set you free, well, now why are you inviting them to be enslaved again to the law? So we could be wrong, and we just need correction, just as sort of Peter needed specific correction. But also we could be incomplete. We just need something more to learn. Go ahead, Brian, with Acts 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Yeah, and so you see everything about the pastor is going to sort of commend this person. This is, this is a, a strong teacher, understands the scriptures, competent, teaching accurately the way of Jesus, but, but he was only really instructed and taught in the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila, you know, they're going to have a very different kind of conversation with him than Paul had with Peter. <laughs> so Peter's going to, Paul's going to say, okay, in front of everybody, I'm going to call him out and confront this. Because even Barnabas has been led astray by this hypocrisy. This has to sort of be dealt with. But here you see Priscilla Quo, they're going to take him <coughs> aside quietly. And they're just going to sort of fill out what was incomplete in his understanding. And so we see both, number one, we could be wrong. Number two, we could be incomplete. And we just need someone to help us learn. But then thirdly, it's just the way God has so designed the body to operate. That it's, okay, we're all speaking the truth in love and growing up together. You know, Ephesians 4 gives this impression, okay, every member of the body of Christ contributing something to the edification of the body. And a lot of that is speech. Speaking truth in love, we're to grow up into all aspects into our head, and that is Christ. So we also see, okay, God's just designed the body of Christ to work that way, to depend on sort of a cooperative faithfulness in the word. 
Any questions or final comments on arriving at sound doctrine? Yes, Kate. Yeah, yeah. just where Paul's going to say to the elders at Ephesus that I did not neglect to, to give you the whole counsel of God. You know, that, so number one, he wants us yet to, to read the whole. Number two, I think something you said there too is he wants us to work for it. Like it, that it's not, because I love it too, it's just not something that you spend a year reading the Bible and you're done. Just put it on the shelf, dial it in, but you have to keep coming back. It's good. Yeah, Jeremy. Yeah, and, and truly the, the best sort of road of that for all of us is a humble heart, carefully studying the Word every day over time. Because in the Word itself, the faith is frequently attacked. In the Word itself, there's all kinds of opposition to what God is doing. And so Paul's constantly sort of having to respond to attacks. And so even by reading the Word and studying it, we get to see, okay, what do you say then? How do, you, how do we really articulate the faith? Rabatunde, would you pray for us and we can adjourn and Amen. Amen. Thanks, y'all.